This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 1st, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The rules governing whistleblowers are set by statute, and the legal requirements for whistleblowers simply haven't changed recently. The contrary claim in The Federalist quickly made the rounds this week promoted by Fox News, Republican lawmakers, and the president himself. To be clear, the claim that whistleblowers recently were required to have first-hand information of wrongdoing was false. Cato's Julian Sanchez provides the details. As everybody gets uh, fired up about this whistleblower who has made some fairly specific and uh, we've since learned uh, corroborated in some ways claims about the president of the United States bringing pressure on uh, Ukraine to dig up dirt or launch investigations into the former vice president, Joe Biden, and his son, Hunter Biden. Uh, There has been this uh, kerfuffle relating to a form that is used by uh, the intelligence agencies uh, to allow people to report what they believe is uh, illegal uh, or unconstitutional conduct within the uh, federal government of the United States of America. And and part of the, the problem that has been uh, pointed out in particular by the Federalists, but has been since picked up by Fox News and even the president of the United States has uh, tweeted out references to uh, this claim. It is that the claim, the form, the relevant form, which may or may not have been used by this whistleblower, we're not, as, as, as you and I discussed, this is not clear that he made use of that. Um, was changed a very brief time before this whistleblower complaint was actually filed. So uh, if you could, and as clearly as you can, detail what that is, uh, what that means to you. So I want to bracket that for a moment and just say, in a sense, it's a little absurd that we're talking about this. Um, we have at this point now, uh, if not a verbatim transcript, a, a, a sort of detailed summary of the controversial conversation, phone conversation between uh, President Trump and the Ukrainian president. Uh, We have confirmation from White House officials now publicly reported that the um, that call transcript or summary was moved into a uh, storage system normally reserved for only the most highly classified uh, code word level compartmentalized information, not normally used for uh, routine calls with foreign leaders. Um, so those were you know, the two sort of essential elements of the complaint. Um, we now have you know, publicly the relevant information. So how the whistleblower initially knew about this or whether it was firsthand or secondhand um, really seems beside the point in a sense the focus on this seems to be a way of diverting attention from talking about the substance of the facts that are now known. But um, people are attempting to focus on that aspect of it. And so one of the things they're focusing on is that the uh, the ICIG, that is the, the Intelligence Community Inspector General, um, has a form uh, that allows uh, intelligence community employees to submit uh, what they regard are as in urgent concerns. This is uh, it's a term of art that is that is defined under statute in a fairly complicated way, but essentially serious abuses of power or waste, fraud, uh, other kinds of uh, misconduct. Um, 
It can be uh, submitted to the ICIG, uh, which are then evaluated. Uh, the ICIG, upon receipt of such a complaint, has 14 days to conduct a kind of preliminary investigation, uh, determine whether that complaint is credible. Um, the statutes don't really define that, um, presumably because um, that's we just, that's up to the judgment of the IG. Uh, and if they are deemed credible, they are then forwarded to the Director of National Intelligence, the DNI, um, who under law is supposed to then forward uh, that complaint to the intelligence committees. And as a matter of past practice, we know that um, in the past, often even if the complaint did not quite satisfy the definition of an urgent concern out of a kind of abundance of caution, the complaint would be forwarded anyway. So what the Federalist and now apparently uh, Fox and many other um, elected Republicans um, have, have seized on is that there is um, a May 2018 version of this form um, that includes language that says, um, and there's sort of a heading that says, firsthand knowledge required. Um, and this sounds like it means the complainant has to have direct knowledge of whatever they're reporting. Um, if you don't read past the heading to the actual text, and if you don't understand the law, what the section actually says is that in order to make a determination that the complaint is credible, um, that is to say, if a complaint is going to be transmitted under the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act to the DNI, that uh, the IG must be in possession of more than merely a sort of secondhand allegation. Um, they must be able to substantiate or corroborate it in some way, um, either you know, evidence or through, again, direct testimony of someone who's witnessed something. Um, so what it essentially is is putting people on notice to say, if we can't confirm what you've reported or substantiated, at least in some way, it will not be escalated. It's not going to get transmitted to the DNI. Um, it doesn't say you must have direct knowledge in order to make a report at all. In fact, if you scroll down in the very same form, and I think it's somewhat telling that the um, the sort of Federalist article that kicked all of this off um, cites this section that talks about uh, what is needed for the IG to make a credibility determination. If you go down a couple of pages, there's a section where the complainant can fill in, I know about the conduct I am reporting because option one, I have direct or personal knowledge of it. Option two, uh, I have heard about it from other employees. Option three, I have some other source and please explain that. So the form itself clearly is contemplating that a submission from the person raising the complaint may be based in significant part on secondhand information. Um, you know, in many contexts, to require first-hand information would effectively be requiring the person engaged in misconduct to report on themselves. Um, so, you know, this is not a requirement on what people can submit as a complaint. Um, it's, it's sort of an articulation of, of the, uh, the standard the IG is going to apply in deciding whether this is something to forward on. And, you know, if you look at, again, this is not new language. If you look at the DNI's uh, whistleblower outreach website, this is a website that's been up for for some time, um, so not recently changed. Uh, you know, it acknowledges that given the nature of the I of the IC, given how siloed information is, that someone who's raising a complaint um, may not themselves uh, have access to all the information that's necessary um, to substantiate a, a complaint. And what that website says and has said for quite some time is, as long as you have a good faith belief that you are reporting wrongdoing, um, do not conduct your own investigation. 
submit your concerns and the IG will conduct the actual investigation because the IG has, um, by statute, fairly broad access to classified information, fairly broad ability to interview other IC personnel. Um, and again, you know, if you look at the uh, the submission from the IG to the DNI, uh, he describes doing exactly that, using his authority, using the time allowed, that's 14 days, to conduct a preliminary investigation um, that led to him acquiring sufficient other information that he made a determination of credibility. Um, again, um, it, it, in some sense, this seems like it should be moot. We have the underlying information at this point, and so we don't really need to be dwelling on uh, you know, the the propriety of the sort of the, the forms that were used to um, initially submit it. Um, but I guess we should add a couple things. One, uh, it would be very strange if in the week we've been discussing this and the controversy over whether it was legally appropriate for the DNI not to forward this complaint to Congress, um, if this sort of imaginary requirement that the initial complaint has to have firsthand knowledge were real, it would be very strange that the DNI did not raise this, that the OLC opinion justifying not forwarding it to Congress did not raise this, um, that this, you know all of these sort of intelligence and law experts somehow missed this critical requirement until the Federalists discovered it. Um, that would be pretty odd. It would also be an incredibly stupid requirement. Um, you know, the again, in some cases, it might require essentially person engaged in misconduct to be reporting on themselves, but also, you know, very often telling the difference between, uh, you know, an innocent uh, aberration or something that is just a little out of the ordinary and something that seems like genuine misconduct is a matter of seeing patterns, not just, well, this odd request was made to me, um, but when I projected it, someone else. Uh, had a similar unorthodox request made of them. Um, you know, if the only reason to have a rule that says you can't essentially factor in uh, this kind of secondhand information in determining that what you're looking at is something that may be misconduct uh, rather than some sort of one-off um, is if you don't want to encourage whistleblower and if you don't want misconduct to be found. How do we know uh, how the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community has handled complaints in the past. I mean, a lot of them weren't forwarded, so we don't know anything about those, presumably. But uh, what do we know about them? Well, so one thing that the ICIG did raise in uh, a letter uh, to Chairman Schiff of the Intelligence Community is precisely that in the past, even when for one reason or another, uh, a complaint did not uh, quite satisfy some of the statutory definitions for an urgent concern that they have out of kind of an abundance of caution simply forwarded the complaint anyway um, to make sure that Congress was aware of it and Congress could determine whether this was something that they needed to uh, attend to. Um, there may be cases where um, a complaint was filed and um, you know there was some clear innocent explanation and so it was sort of resolved before getting to that point um and those were not forwarded to the dni um but uh, you know I, I think in the past the, what the the icig has at least said is um that they have tended to err on the side of disclosure to congress of course not to uh the public if i'm reading you correctly this story is simply false at its core yeah. Uh, the one thing that seems to be true 
is that some of this language uh, about firsthand knowledge being necessary, again, as a description of the IG's criteria for assessing credibility, not as a threshold barrier for someone who wants to submit a complaint, uh, that does seem to have been removed at some point. It's not in the... Um, the most recent version updated in August, and it was in uh, a May 2018 version. So somewhere in between there, uh, that language came out. Um, to my mind, insofar as that language could be misread to say, um, well, don't bother sending in a complaint unless you have direct firsthand knowledge. Don't bother raising a concern if it's uh, just something another employee told you about and they are afraid to make a complaint. Uh, then, yeah, it's a good thing they removed that because you don't want to unnecessarily deter people from raising concerns when, you know, nothing in the underlying statute, the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act, says anything about, uh, you know, needing first-hand information uh, in order to make a protected whistleblower disclosure. Nothing in uh, PPD, pre uh, Presidential Policy Directive 19 or Intelligence Community Directive 120, which are the, uh, the directives governing retaliation against whistleblowers, say anything about first-hand information being necessary. So, you know, the law and the relevant directives um, don't make this distinction between someone reporting something they saw and someone reporting something uh, they heard about, as long as uh, you know, there's a determination and investigation that that information is credible. Uh, and that's, you know, pretty clearly, I think, what we should want. We shouldn't be trying to discourage people from reporting misconduct. And, and in any case, key elements of it were corroborated almost immediately once we knew what, the, what was in the complaint. Right. I mean, as I said at the outset, um, it is very strange that there is as much focus as there now is on, well, who is this whistleblower and, you know, why did they do what they, you know, it's like if the, you know, the police show up at your house and and say, well, we had an informant's tip and we see you have a bloody knife on the floor and, a, a you know, some corpses under the floorboard. Um, you know, I suppose, you know, at a criminal trial under the exclusionary rule, there may be, uh, you know, a question if the warrant was improperly obtained, the evidence is not admissible, but that's not where we are here, this is a whistleblower complaint, not a not a, a Fourth Amendment search, and it's not a criminal trial. It's a, a question of impeachment. So, um, in a sense, we're just sort of past the point where that matters. So, what did you make of the the substance of the complaint in terms of reaching for additional information? That is, there were essentially paths laid out mm -hmm. within the complaint that allow. Uh, the House, at least, to reach into other areas and say, we would like some more information about this, this, and this. And of course, the the House has also has requested a lot of documents from the Secretary of State mm -hmm. uh, and, and others. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, in part because uh, the whistleblower was cognizant that they were, uh, you know, in a sense, in places relying on things that they had directly been told at, at meetings, for example, uh, as part of the interagency process uh, in a sort of official sense, uh, uh, but also on concerns relayed by other people, that it was going to be necessary to sketch out to the IG, at least, uh, a path for, you know, look, this is what the concerns I have, and here is how you might go about corroborating and verifying um, that the concerns that have been related to me um, have some basis. And, you know, the IGA doesn't go into enormous detail about what other information uh, he obtained and how, but um, it seems as though he probably at least spoke to some other uh, officials within the executive branch to uh, corroborate this. And there are, you know, there are paths laid out um, in that sense. We've confirmed 
uh, the White House has effectively confirmed the lawyers made a determination about moving these uh, tra- call transcripts to this um, super classified special compartmentalized information code word uh, server. So that's something to follow up on. Um, and, you know, there's also, of course, the, 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 the question of, uh, you know, getting people in to try and confirm whether um, they had indeed expressed the concerns, whether this was viewed by staff contemporaneously um, as 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 being problematic, though executive privilege may be a barrier there. Um, but in, again, in a sense, a lot of the underlying stuff is now public. So there are a lot more uh, bits of information um, a Congress might be interested in seeing, for example, uh, you know, if they can if they can get them despite potential executive privilege objections, um, other communications that were considered, you know, uh, potentially embarrassing and moved on to this code word server, uh, which is, you know, I think a, a potential abuse of the classification system, right? Code word classification is about protecting the most sensitive national security information, not about hiding access to um, you know, sort of lower level classified information that is embarrassing to the president. Um, so, you know, those are all obvious threads to uh, pull on and unravel in the course of following up this inquiry. And you also, uh, it, it's interesting that uh, if I understand some of the reporting on this initially, the the group that received essentially these memcons, these memoranda of conversations uh, uh, regarding the president's phone calls, was early was initially a fairly wide group. Uh, that group was significantly narrowed, but you understand why there's a distribution group at all, sure. and that is because there are the relevant department heads in the United States, uh, in the federal government, ought to be able to have some appreciation for what the president of the United States is saying to world leaders. That's right. And, you know, uh, we'll talk about whether the whistleblower saw the initial sort of full memo or transcript of the call, but there is language that suggests they were on the distribution list for some level of a readout on that call. Uh, it says something to the effect of, well, I was not the only official who received um, a summary of this, so perhaps not the one that's now become public, um, but some summary um, that may have uh, you know, given given rise to uh, concern that the um, the worries related to him by other officials were. Uh, you know, corresponded to the actual content of the call. Um, and yeah, no, you know, it is it is sort of necessary for different, you know, one hand to know what the other is doing. Um, and certainly like the Secretary of State, who it has been revealed was on the call. Right. Should uh, have access to those calls when they're not able to be on the call. Right. One would hope. And, you know, there there are uh, in terms of kind of this code for classification, you know, there may be rare instances when some classified intelligence is, is sort of shared, but the the obvious sort of incongruity of having these transcripts stored on a code word server is that you would never actually or you would extraordinarily rarely ever be discussing an actual code word classified program with a foreign head of state, certainly not on a call with uh, you know many other people uh, present. There are occasions when there's a you know a small subset of allies with whom um, that most sensitive intelligence might, after very careful consideration, be shared, um, but not in this in this manner. So the idea, you know, it was I think just sort of clear on face, even without looking at the transcript of the call, um, that there's just sort of no way that this kind of exchange would contain code word classified 
uh, information without someone having, you know, sort of made a, a terrible blunder. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.